The thing that makes El Cap so intimidating is the sheer scale of the wall. This is Alex Honnold. He is a world-famous rock climber who is a free soloist, best known for his summits of big Yosemite walls. And when I say free solo, I mean climbing without a rope. Climbing with a rope is a largely physical effort. You just have to be strong enough to hold on and make the movements upward. But free soloing plays out more in the mind. The physical effort is largely the same. Your body is still climbing the same wall. But staying calm and performing at your best when you know that any mistake could mean death requires a certain kind of mindset. <laughs> That's not supposed to be funny, but, but it is, it is. <laughs> As a lover of mountain sports, I have been following Alex's career for many years. I think he is one of the most interesting athletes in the world, but also crazy. I mean, he's out there climbing El Capitan, a 3,000-foot wall, without a rope. What does that do to a person? And more broadly, he's now the world's most famous climber. What does that do to a sport? So to find out, I've brought on professional rock climber Augie Cohn to discuss a smattering of the climbing books on the market today, namely Alone on the Wall by Alex Arnold and Tommy Caldwell's The Dawn Wall. Augie was on the USA climbing team competing at the world stage at the age of 18. He's coached multiple youth athletes to make the USA national team, and he sets routes for these competitions today. He set more than 10 national competitions already, and he recently set the national team qualifying attempt, which determines which athletes will compete for the US Olympic team. Climbers have ratings based off of the difficulty of the climbs they've completed. Augie is rated a 5.14 B as in Bravo, which is incredibly impressive. To put that in perspective, Alex Arnold is a 5.14 D as in Delta. Augie is also annoyingly humble, and I had to go ask his wife for all of those accomplishments. So if you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider rating us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and also consider joining our mailing list at 99pages.club so you can get the latest on our new episodes and my monthly nonfiction book recommendations for your reading list. Thanks, and enjoy the show. When you think about your icons in rock climbing, like do Tommy Caldwell and Alex and Old make the list? Uh, Tommy Caldwell, absolutely. Uh, he's an incredibly impressive climber and so is Alex Honnold. Um, but I also think in this whole conversation, there's kind of an important um, framing of the disciplines of climbing that I think is key here. Um, so I would say that what Alex Honnold is doing is a lot different than the, uh, some of the climbing that Tommy Caldwell has been doing, which is also very different from a lot of the popular uh, publications of climbing that we've seen throughout history of like, uh, like even going back to like John Krakauer and like into thin air and like mountaineering stories. Those are very different sports, right? And what I'm talking about in terms of competition rock climbing is also a whole nother ballgame. As climbing has grown and kind of evolved, especially with indoor climbing, it's become a very, very general term to say climbing. So climbing really can encompass like what is essentially three or four different disciplines at this point you know we have bouldering which is just like climbing without a rope right um something i do a lot of it's really mostly about like the athleticism of the sport more than it is about adventure or getting to a peak um i would say the same thing is true of sport climbing which is we're climbing on a rope now but not super high necessarily some of these routes are only like 30 feet um other times you might climb up to like 100 or so feet but you don't go much more than that um we get into more like alpine climbing which, you know, that might mean like trad climbing, uh, placing gear as you go, um, might be climbing multi-pitch stuff at that point. So you might be climbing several hundred feet or a thousand feet. Like this is what El Cap climbing is. And then, you know, you also have mountaineering, which is a whole other ballgame in terms of uh, ice climbing and the skills that go into that. When I'm talking about this in my experience, I am a sport climber and a boulder. And I come from a, I've done that a lot outside. I've done a lot inside in competitive environments. But I've never climbed like a gnarly mountain. And honestly, I don't have that much interest in it. It's what I love about the sport is the athleticism of it. Um, yeah. I get a lot of the same enjoyment I do out of rock climbing that I think a lot of other people do out of playing basketball or snowboarding or mountain biking. Or... It's, it's a sport. Yeah. It's not, it's not necessarily an adventure for me. 
I think that's so helpful for our listeners to understand is, and if you don't mind, I'd like to brief back what you just told me a little bit. It's, you know, it's not, I think most of the people in this sort of like climbing entertainment wave, we kind of group all of it into one bucket. But what you're helping us do is partition it between bouldering, sport climbing, which is, I think you set kind of like maybe a hundred feet or so mm-hmm. as, a, as a rough tier. And that could be in the gym, it can be outside, but th- that, those are kind of like where the sport, the sport climbing uh, line is sort of drawn. But then you have alpine climbing, which is what I believe like guys like Tommy Caldwell and Alex and Old have done on mm-hmm. El Capitan. And then you have uh, mountaineering climbing, which is, I, I would argue, maybe the documentary Meru, uh, where Jimmy Chin and a couple folks climb this ridiculous mountain, highly technical mountain in the Himalayas uh, that takes them multiple attempts and they run into some horrifying situations. Um, which actually brings me to the reason why I wanted to talk to you. Uh, because, you know, a while back, we were having a conversation about this like media storm of climbing content. And I was just a fanboy of all of it. Man, I have seen the free solo documentary like 10 times. I'm not even kidding. The only thing I've watched more than that is The Office uh, <laughs> and reruns of a TV show like that. Uh, I love the Dawn Wall. I love all this content. It, like I said, it exhilarates me. But you put something into my head which has never left. And that is, what is the downside of this content? And specifically with a guy like Jimmy Chin, who is this really prolific mountaineering videographer and documentarian, and he makes all of these badass climbing docs, but like they're glorifying something that is potentially very hazardous and toxic. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about when you see these docs glorifying these big dangerous summits, what, what are you seeing that a lay person like me is not? Yeah. So I think there's a few things there. And a lot of it, I think also should come from kind of the history of our sport. Um, so I'll, I'll start with Alex Honnold and what he's doing free soloing and you know, climbing El Cap without a rope. And that is such an impressive human feat. Like I watched free solo and I'm blown away. I think it's incredible. But I think it's important to understand that Alex Honnold is far from the first rock climber to do really, really impressive things with everyone. Fred Becky is one person who's actually in free solo and uh, has a conversation with Alex Honnold. Yeah. Fred Becky at the time, you know, I think we're probably talking, I believe he was doing stuff in like the seventies. And, uh, but at that time when he was free soloing, he was doing some things that nobody had ever done before. And it was very impressive. And he was doing it without telling anyone. And there's a lot of this kind of like, um, maybe, stoic nostalgia when we look back at climbing history and these people who were clearly doing it only for themselves and when somebody goes in solos without telling anyone else and is just doing it for their own experience i have a lot of respect for that and because it's their own choice they're choosing to make that risk and they get something really special from that experience and i think that's really cool when somebody then kind of gets their motivations mixed up with these kind of commercial interests of being able to promote a large movie or to be able to make a lot of money from their talent. Um, I start to get a lot of mixed feelings because it starts to become a perpetuation of their ideas and values within the sport. And to be honest, as much as I think the movie Free Solo is great and what I think Alex Honnold did is such an amazing accomplishment, I hate that that is the face of our sport right now. Um, wow. The reality is that this perception that climbing is like this dangerous adventure sport, like that's, it's not. Uh, it's actually, I would argue that climbing is probably like one of the safest sports you can find, um, like more so than like soccer or like football. Um, for me personally, like if I had a child, I'd absolutely feel safer about them rock climbing um, than I would about playing soccer. Wow. Um, Yeah, that's a statement right there. So, you know, here's something else I wanted to kind of point out. Is there something interesting about the personality, the disposition of these rock climbers? Alex, let's let's just isolate for the time being Tommy Caldwell and Alex and Old, who they don't have the brashness, the like the nature of like a football player, a boxer, another like intense athlete that's just brimming with testosterone and ego. They're actually like really mild-mannered dudes. 
And I'd actually go a step further. You can see there's a little bit of genius in each of their eyes, right? They have to look at each like groove and texture on a rock with such analytical precision, right? There's genius uh, in what they do. Um, to what extent do you think that like their their sort of personality quirks are part of the appeal? You know, because I'd argue that in addition to it just being a sexy like thing to climb a rock without a rope or do do the dawn wall and spend multiple days on the side of El Cap, these guys seem like more or less like normal dudes. Does that make sense? It does. And I think that particularly with um with Free Solo, I think it like, yes, Alex Honnold is obviously like a very compelling personality. It's incredibly interesting to like contemplate a person who doesn't really experience fear to the same extent that other humans do. Um, it's fascinating. And beyond that, I think that Honnold is an incredibly compelling character in that he's really, uh, really intelligent. Um, and I love hearing about like what he's doing outside of climbing as well in terms of through his foundation and what he has done for environmental protections. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a pretty good bet right now that Alex Honnold has done more for environmental protection than any rock climber outside of, you know, Yvonne Chouinard. Um, so who founded Patagonia? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the personalities are a huge part of it. Um, you know, Tommy Caldwell, I think is a great example too, but, and what I like about Tommy is what he represents about the sport is really comprehensive. Uh, Tommy was, uh, Tommy was like, I think he, won the World Cup or was very competitive in the international competitions in addition to doing big wall climbing like the Dong Wall, um, in addition to doing some really hard sport climbs as well. Um, his story is also, I think, so compelling in that, you know, surviving a kidnapping from terrorists in Kyrgyzstan, uh, like, it's an insane story. Yeah, it's incredibly compelling. And again, it comes from this personality who's like a pretty grounded dude, who's like a, just the regular guy. Um, yeah. So yeah, the personalities I think are absolutely a huge part of it. But I also think that I, I'm concerned a little bit about how we're attaching these personalities to what elements of the sport. Uh, uh, this unnecessary risk taking, like I don't think, is what we should glorify about the sport. And I just want people to see climbing for the great thing that it is. That's like a really, really approachable thing that one they can access if they want to. Um, and two, just recognizing how much these people in these stories are choosing to take these risks without necessarily needing to, I yeah. think should also, that context is important. I think it's easy to miss. Um, and so to kind of distill what I'm learning here, it's like, on one hand, I think let's start with a positive. I think, and, and I can start with a positive as, as the lay person watching from my living room couch, uh, the only thing I'm free soloing is like how fast I can dig through a bag of potato chips when I'm watching the documentary. Um, <laughs> uh, and so I see these guys as like, like I said, relatively normal, uh, accessible, mild mannered people who undertake these ridiculous challenges. Uh, and some like in Tommy Caldwell's case in particular, like are battling through some real trauma, right? We learn about his, um, his kidnapping early in his career and then his subsequent divorce. Um, this is like really traumatic. And he channels that energy uh, into this project, the Don Wall, right? And same with Alex and all. It's like this, this relentless focus. And each of them are successful. And I walk away feeling like, wow, I can do anything, right? I'm just a normal guy and I can do anything too. And I think that there's some real beauty in that. But you're pointing out, like I said, some real like missed undercurrents of risk and danger that the average person can just sort of like walk right by and just accept as normal, which it is categorically not. These guys, like, especially that getting on there without a rope, that is super dangerous and highly calculated. And your point about, you know, when we brought up Jimmy Chin, like he's having these athletes do these dangerous acts in front of a camera with you know the expectation that people will watch your every move they're gonna it's almost like having the judgment of the world in the room or of your conscience when you're making a, a risk-based decision and that is that's whether like that's pressure that's scary 
right? That can distort judgment. Yeah, I think, it, I mean, absolutely. I think that could distort judgment. But I also think it's interesting in that they're, you know, especially Alex Honnold, he's bringing this upon himself for his own commercial interests, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, he brought that pressure on so he could make that movie and, you know, fund his foundation now. Um, so in that way, I think it's cool that like a climber is able to make their living from it. But at the same time, yeah, I think that pressure like kind of should be there in that we should be critical when we see something that's people are risking their lives unnecessarily for recreation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think we should condemn them for doing that. I think that's anybody's individual right and freedom to make that choice. Uh, but I just wish that we would look at these videos and admire the talent and athleticism of these people rather than just the risk taking. It's a very uh, important distinction. Yeah. And that's one of the things I love about in this conversation, like, you know, talking about Tommy Caldwell is one of the most talented climbers in history in terms of what he's done. His technical and athletic and mental ability to make these things happen is, is very few people on the planet have ever been able to do. And he does it in a way that he's not really taking on unnecessary risk in a lot of what he's doing. Um, Tommy Caldwell isn't soloing 513s. That's not really something he's doing. And I really respect that about him. Whereas I think what Honnold and Jimmy Chin are doing, it's, you know, you could easily put a rope on or in Jimmy Chin's case, like wait until there are better avalanche conditions, uh, wait for better weather. Um, All of these things are, these are critical questions I think are just like important that audiences know about because of course mass audiences aren't going to know like the finer points of protecting a rock climb or predicting avalanche conditions. Yeah. And that's, that's fine. But I think that that's something that I wish people got exposed a little more to. It's interesting to see public reactions to it. And I also think that those public reactions, I think will probably shift as more and more people are learning how to rock climb because the sport is growing so fast. Indeed it is. It's huge. Um, you know, there are a couple of other things that I wanted to, that, uh, that stand out to me, particularly in the Dawn wall, uh, that I think are really special moments and special things that we can take away. Uh, and I, I've read the book, I've seen the documentaries. I love the story. And some, there, there are two moments or two things that I think are super interesting. First and foremost is the relationship between Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen, where, you know, Kevin is like, he's act, this is actually a moment where he is bridging. He is a bouldering champion trying to make a break into alpine climbing, right? A distinction that you kind of helped me understand just now. And now I kind of see like he's sh- shifting into a totally different sport. Um, and he's on that wall with Tommy and Tommy gets to this amazing like achievement. He's, uh, you know, he, he's, and he actually pauses his climb effectively to let Kevin catch up, right? There's this moment where Tommy is so far ahead of him in the climb. And yet he's like, even if I finish this project, like it won't be worth it if I can't do it with my friend and my partner. And that to me, like really like, Oh man, my heart just like burst for him, man. Like that was such a special moment for me. I mean, have you like, did you experience that same like level of like, oh my God, brotherhood on the rock? (laughs) Yeah, I I love that part. And I think it's really cool because I think it's really just representative of the climbing community. Um, That interaction, I think is something that happens really often in climbing. And what's funny about it is when I look at that, I'm a little bit like, yeah, of course he waited. I don't know. That's like just kind of what you do. Like what's keeping you like what would stop you especially in that situation like you know they have every resource imaginable devoted to that climb like yeah of course you hang out a little longer and that's kind of just how it goes the number of times that you know i've you know gone to a wall with a friend just to belay them like i didn't really have any climbing objectives countless times and vice versa where i've had a friend come belay me when they didn't really have anything they want to climb that's just so standard for the sport and i think it's cool that it got to be like kind of put on display in that kind of cutesy Hollywoodish kind of way for past audiences. I, I thought it was nice. It was you cool. call it cutesy? Oh man, dude, that's like the peak of masculinity for me. Tommy Caldwell is hanging off of El Capitan on the Don Wall and goes back to get his friend. That's like he's the man. Absolutely, but I mean, it's. I guess it just comes back to if you really know what they're doing there and how the systems work, it's not extreme. Like they're comfortable in that environment. It's not. All right, hang on, back <laughs> up. These guys have been living in a portal edge for three weeks, right? Like they cannot get off that wall. They are literally sticking their asses out of the tent to take a dump, right? 
and they, they're not comfortable. Like, come on, let's be. Uh... <laughs> I mean, you have to take into account these people's experiences in training up to that point. And uh, the reality is that, like, that lifestyle for them and like how that they've prepared for it and the skills and knowledge that they have, it is pretty comfortable. That's uh, awesome. And it's also why that in that environment, I think it's telling that the thing that they were most concerned about was the skin on their fingertips. Mm. Um, and honestly, like that extra time, skin is always going to be the most like uncomfortable factor for a rock climber in that kind of environment. Um, so the extra time to heal his skin actually was probably pretty welcome for Tommy. You know, the other element, the other story of, of this, uh, and I actually remember the moment in the book when I read this, uh, it was a change of focus was when, and, and I don't know if it's real or not, but Kevin, quote unquote, drops his phone off the portal <laughs> to fall thousands of feet. I think, I can't remember, was it Kevin or Tommy? I think it might've been Tommy actually. Now I, that I, I thought it was both of them actually. Yeah, they both magically this... dropped their phones off the portal edge. And all of a sudden they're able to get dialed in focus and, and really harness all of their capacity uh, to climb this rock. That to me was one of the like, res- like, you know, the angel started singing to me because <laughs> I, I think of like how often I am just in my day-to-day life trying to do something relatively trivial, like not climb a rock or anything, but like this phone is such a fucking distraction. I need to just throw it off the portal edge like these guys did and get something done. Um, I just absolutely, it, it actually is to your point earlier about like when you're doing something, whether it's risky or not, when, when other people are in the space of your consciousness, like it, it's distracting, it's unproductive, and they had to get rid of it. Uh, absolutely. I actually think that moment's cool and that because uh, it has a parallel moment in Free Solo. I would say when Alex Honnold decides to go climb it and the attempt he actually is successful, um, he didn't tell anybody he was going out, right? Only the camera crew knew. Um, and the, on his first attempt, there was like a circus and massive people watching him. And, uh, and it was the conversation he has in this interview with Brad Becky that says, uh, you know, hey, you got to just do this for yourself and ignore these other people. Um, and I think that's the same thing, you know, Tommy and Kevin were doing on the Donwall. And I think yeah. it's cool in that there's also an important parallel there, I think, just for every individual in that if you're rock climbing or really anything you're choosing to do that's going to be really hard, you should be doing it for your own reasons and not for how you think other people are going to perceive you for. And I think that these people, these intelligent athletes know that instinctively. So they kind of make these choices so they don't have to worry about what other people are going to think of them and they can do it for something closer to what is their own motivations. Very well said, man. I think that is so interesting. And so you, I, I want to kind of uh, par- turn the conversation now a little bit back to uh, your work because i think something that has been super fascinating to me is like this headspace of a rock climber right because um it's not like a like i said it's not just this like sport of like brute force right there is so and it's like a puzzle and you need the dexterity of like a violinist on these mountains while by the way your back and lat muscles are just pulsating with pain uh, after so many hours just hanging by your fingertips, um, you're setting routes for these elite athletes, like athletes. Um, how do you think about setting routes for competition? Like when you are trying to set these routes, you have to be putting yourself in the mind of a climber. Like, how do you design a route for these competitions? I think that's super fascinating. Yeah. So I think this is especially a fun challenge when I'm setting for climbers that are a lot better than me, which I do get a decent amount of opportunities to do that. Um, yeah, so how do you set a route for somebody who's much better than you? Uh, really what we do as route setters is we leverage this huge advantage we have in that we can try the routes many times and we have information about the routes, whereas the athletes don't. The athletes are trying to on-site them, meaning they have no information about the climbs uh, before they start climbing and they only get one try. Um, and they can't watch each other, right? And that, this is, I think, is what's so cool about climbing when you talk about these like more mental aspects of it, is that you know there, there's a puzzle component to what is your sequence going to be when you climb a route? Um, where are you going to put your hands? Where are you going to put your feet? What holds are the right ones to grab? Which holds do you think you can rest on and recover for a little? Which holds can you not? And you're going to need to be able to like move fast through. So 
it's a very, very tactical and cerebral thing. What's really fun about it as a root setter is that I can try these roots with a lot of information and talk to the other root setters about it. And in that context, it's so much easier to do well on a rock climb than when you're on siting. And wow. that's why on-site rock climbing in particular is like my favorite part of the sport because it's the perfect test of somebody's total skills. You have to be really strong and fit. You have to be really smart and make good tactical decisions. Um, and you have to be really, really strong emotionally. Um, really good rock climbers and a lot of really, really good athletes in general talk about how they use their emotions at different times. Um, you know, Michael Jordan used to talk about how, you know, he would try to like kind of save it for the fourth quarter so he could win the game then. Right. And you can kind of see it on his face too. There was a certain point in games where he would like put on his game face and you could tell that he was harnessing his, his desire to win and competitive energy in those key moments a lot more seriously. And it's the same thing for a rock climber on a route. You know, when you get to a certain particular key part of a climb, you're going to need to dial it in and be super focused and execute the thing, right? Just like any sport. And uh, that test in that context where you're only going to get one try, nobody's allowed to help you with it. You get no other support, no other information. I just think it's such a cool test of an individual's skills and talents that you don't get to see in many other places in sport. And I think it's like really special and fun to watch. That's, that's good podcast content, man. I love that. That was beautiful. That, I'll <laughs> put my plug in there too. Like go YouTube IFSC rock climbing, International Federation of Sport Climbing. It's the international governing body for it. It's became an Olympic sport for a reason. It's very fun to watch, I think. So let's uh, talk about this because, you know, you it, climbing is now an Olympic sport. Like where the fuck did that come from? Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. How do you think that has like affected the growth of the sport and public perceptions? Um, because, you know, I'd argue that when a sport becomes an Olympic sport, plus it's paired with these documentaries, just glorifying big views, big danger, big risks, uh, and these insurmountable challenge, like there's gotta be a lot of like complexities of how the sport grows. And especially, you know, the other thing that, that, that is, you know, here is this underlying culture. Like the way you were just talking about how for Tommy Caldwell to go back and get Kevin, you're like, I wasn't even phased by that at all. I, who wouldn't do that in our community, right? As the sport grows, that's got to be fizzling or diluting a little bit, right? Like how has this growth affected the sport? Uh, oh, that's such a good question. And there's so many layers to this one. Um, oh, so I guess I'll start with like traditionally climbing, I think almost has this resemblance to like skateboard culture older skateboard culture that's kind of this countercultural movement of people who wanted to go do this fringe thing because that suited them and they weren't really they didn't want to associate with the masses that was like i think this kind of like first wave of popular rock climbing and that happened honestly that seems like it was from like those yosemite days in like the 70s up through like it kind of felt like like i felt that history when i started climbing as a kid in like 2003 um so I would say that those years were kind of this time of this still being sort of counterculture sport. That's kind of this fringe thing. And it's grown so fast to the point that I would say it's mainstream now. What that means is that culture has definitely changed. And there are a lot of, a lot of rock climbers who are really bitter about that change. Uh, there are a lot of rock climbers who, you know, bemoan how crowded all of the outdoor climbing areas are now. How bad some of the newer members of the community are taking care of those areas. Um, you know, we've seen climbing areas getting so abused now um, just because of the sheer number of people going through them. Um, you know, it's like almost like a national park in some ways now. Like some, like Bishop is this really popular building area in California. Uh, and that place probably sees like, you know, at least tens of thousands of climbers going through it every winter. Um, tens of thousands. Yeah, for sure. And, you oh, know, we're God. talking about like tens of thousands of people who are tramping through and throwing their crash pads down. like um, these like not very well-made trails around like one single boulder, right? Um, you know, the, like issues around erosion and littering and uh, access to, in some cases, a lot of cases really. Um, it, it's a huge problem in our sport. Um, and there's a lot of good efforts to kind of remediate that. Um, the Access Fund is a really important organization. That's a really good way to support this growth of climbing so that the Access Fund uh, generates a lot of funding to go and buy some like some climbing areas that might be on private land, for example, or putting in, um, 
you know, pit toilets and, uh, and like good trails uh, in a lot of these places too. So that's one major drawback, I think, of the growth of the sport is like how we handle the limited resource that is outdoor rock climbing. On the other side of it, though, that I would say is tremendously positive is there are more and more people who are able to access the sport and get the same positive benefits from it that, you know, I've certainly enjoyed and so many other people have as well. So I would say that the growth of the sport has been a really good thing, even though it does come with these challenges. And the loss of culture is interesting. And I think how we decide what our culture is going to look like going forward with the growth of the sport is, is something that's being decided. And I think, you know, I, I don't think that culture of like uh, community support um, is necessarily going away with the growth of indoor climbing and not as much of the like that old school tradition. Um, for example, indoor competitive rock climbing, uh, I've never seen a competitive environment where the athletes are so supportive of each other. Uh, every single athlete is cheering on their competitors and their rivals after they've had their tournament line, right? And that's a really cool thing to see. Like literally a competitor who has done their performance, all they can do and wait and see how the next person does to decide whether they win the competition, right? In that situation, the person who's sitting in the hot seat will be watching their fellow competitor, cheering them on passionately and honestly. Um, there's some of that, I think, in like skiing as well and some other individual support sports. I think that's great. Everybody wants to win, but they want to beat their, their friends, really, uh, on their friend's best day. So I think that's a really special thing. And to me, it reminds me a bit of this little bit old school tr tradition, maybe it's old school, of trying to support your fellow climber and going out there to belay them, even if it's not what you're trying to climb on. Or, yeah. you know, Tommy Caldwell waiting for Kevin Jordan. Um, so I think that culture has... It's evolved, certainly, but it's kind of carried over in a certain way into this like kind of newer school version of climbing. So that's exciting to see. Can I give you like a cynics, an outsider cynics perspective? Of course. Uh, and look, who the hell am I, right? I'm not, you know, I go bouldering, rock climbing a couple times a year. Um, you and I have gone and, and have had some wonderful uh, times together. Absolutely. Um, I, I so just knowing what I know now, and keep in mind, I work full time uh, in, in a corporate life. What I see is just that sort of camaraderie and cheering in competition, I think, is very easy to achieve when there's not a lot of money on the line. Um, I, one of my favorite in the documentary Free Solo, one of my favorite moments is when this kid in a school that Alex and Old is visiting asks, how much money do you have? Like the most inappropriate thing you could ask. I mean, and it's not like he thinks he's talking to like Michael Jordan of a sport. And I love the kid's honesty. He's like trying to put this into perspective. Like, what is your market value here in this great achievement? And Alex and Old with the driest whatever is like, you know, I'm like a like a moderately successful dentist. Like, <laughs> and he is the, you know, creme de la creme of his sport. And he's like, yeah, I'm about as successful as a moderately compensated dentist. Uh, which to me is hilarious. And I guess just the cynic outsider, you know, in me is like, as the sport grows and the brand's ability in, in a climbing brand's ability to grow proportionally and make money off the eyeballs. And as the sponsorships grow and grow and the, the prizes grow and grow and the visibility grows and grows. Um, I just, yeah, I, I, I like to think that uh, I, and I will hope for sure for your sake that that climbing culture stays intact and withstands that pressure. But man, oh man, that, uh, that feels like a hard, a hard, uh, defense to structure. Is, is that, is that, are you seeing any bit of those kind of cracks that when you go, I can't be all like roses and gumdrops when you go to these competitions. Oh, for sure. Now we can get into the dark side here. I, I got a lot to say about the dark side. Uh, well, yeah. let's be, what, what define dark side? What are we talking dark about? Side, I would say the, uh, I would say negative trends in the climbing world right now. Yeah, let's get in it. Particularly in light of, I think, growing commercial interest. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, to me, the one that I think is the most disgusting part of our support that's the hardest to watch is uh, eating disorders are really rampant in rock climbing, particularly at the highest levels. What the fuck? Are you serious? Uh, the reality is that this is a strength to weight ratio sport, right? And when you're talking about an athlete who's worked their whole life to get the most gains they can in a sport, you kind of... There's a point of diminishing returns they've spent a lot of time in, right? And when you're at that level and you're willing to do anything it takes, a lot of those athletes kind of 
stop taking care of their, their bodies and stop eating. And what I think that does for athletes is in the, a very short sighted sense, it helps them perform better. Um, what I also think it does though, is it completely caps their improvement so that their longevity completely falls off. So what this is, is there's so many athletes in the world cup circuit that are frighteningly skinny. Um, and you know, the IFSC has done nothing to address this in any kind of substantial way. The head doctor for the entire organization stepped down with a public letter saying that the IFSC is not doing anything to address issues in eating disorders and they can no longer stand by and watch. Wow. Yeah. That is not something I think I had ever really been exposed or aware of. That's so tragic. It's horrible. It's awful to see. And you know, no human being should ever sacrifice their long-term health for their short-term gain. And even when you do look at it just from a sheer athleticism, sports performance standpoint, you're mortgaging your future to maybe win now. I just isn't the approach I think anybody should take. Um, yeah. And it's, it's really tragic. Um, but I think that there's a pretty good case to be made that the IFSC to some degree has a financial incentive to not uh, do anything about eating disorders in our sport because uh, a lot of really good athletes wouldn't be competing uh, if they you know, created a hard and fast rule. And, and it's also a very hard thing to regulate, right? Yeah. What is too skinny? What's dangerous here is a really hard line to draw. So I don't mean to say that the challenge is like a, it's an easy fix by any means, but clearly doing nothing isn't acceptable. Wow. Well, talk about, uh, you know, Tommy Caldwell may have a rope, but, you know, I, it, it's interesting to think that someone who's inspired to achieve that level of performance, like if they feel so compelled to mortgage their long-term health to achieve, that's, I mean, going back to what we were talking about, about like kind of glorifying, you know, the sport in, in some pretty crazy ways, like that's absolutely something the documentary doesn't talk about or warn you. It's like, hey, this guy actually had to eat and, you know, take care of his health in ways that he couldn't, you know, mortgage his long-term health to get on that wall. He needed to be nutritionally fit as well. Um, wow. Something interesting. Dark side. What else is in the dark side, man? Uh, I do feel like I should give a quick plug for a, a, a YouTube video that I really regrettably blanking on the filmmaker's name, uh, but she made a really great film about eating disorders and climbing. It's called Light, uh, L-I-G-H-T, just on YouTube. Dude, we'll um, add it in the show notes after the- Perfect. So I'll put that in, man. It's a good one. Um, the uh, other parts of the dark side, I think it's really just commercial interests and in what it's going to do to the sport. Yeah. Um, we saw in the last Olympics, uh, particularly for competitive climbing, the uh, combined format, uh, which from my perspective is ridiculous, but basically they only have one set of medals to give out per gender. So they just had, okay, we're going to have athletes do all three disciplines of competitive climbing, so speed, bouldering, and sport climbing. Um, and uh, we're going to crown the winner based on who's the best at these three things and a combined score. Which to me is like asking like a, a track athlete to go do the triple jump, the 100 meter sprint, and then run like the 800 meter. <laughs> like those are three really different skill sets. Um, and trying to find an athlete who's the best at that combination of three is just kind of arbitrary. Um, wow. So they had this, they had one set of medals to give out and that's how that, like, they made like the decathlon for climbing and yeah. Wow. It's the most contrived <laughs> version of rock climbing I think you could possibly imagine is the combined format. I want to, you know, one of my other favorite parts of rock climbing is like the cool guy vocabulary that I get to hear along the way. It makes me feel like cool. Like I'm a part of the club, you know, when I get to throw out like a, a cool climbing term. Uh, let's start basic, man. What is, what does it mean to send something? To send. That's the whole goal. Um, my favorite is that send it is, uh, even like that's become just a thing in individual outdoor sports. Really? Brother. I say it all the time on the ski slope. I say it on the mountain bike. And when I say it, 
send it. What I'm describing is like you're looking over uh, the top, like let's say you're at the top of a mountain and you're looking at this super steep, scary, potentially a jump. And I'm like, you got to take that breath of like, well, let's see what happens now. <laughs> send it. Just got to muscle up and send it. Just got to get that gravitas and send it. But it means something very different and it originated in climbing. Tell me what it means. Yeah, it just means to get to the top of the climb without weighting the rope or like using any artificial aid. So, so basically the opposite of what I'm doing is... Uh... <laughs> well, no, because you're accomplishing the goal. So in that sense, it's the same. And also though, if you're sending it on a mountain bike or a snowboard, I would argue you didn't really send it if you huck yourself off of it and just completely eat it. Actually, here's the thing. I actually would say, hey, man, at least you sent it. Yeah. <laughs> I would say at least you had the courage. Because to me, when I say that phrase uh, as as a skier and mountain biker, uh, uh, what I'm uh, what I'm summoning is like the will to overcome that moment of fear and trust your skills and to trust your equipment. Uh, because trusting your gear and trusting your skills is like that's yeah. really what the the initial jump is all about or when you're, you know, and I, so when someone falls and eats it, and I've eaten it plenty of times, I actually am like, oh, at least I sent it. Uh, but man, I, I'm glad you're correcting me on my inappropriate use of the phrase. So uh, I'll give it. I mean, I'm by far no expert on ski culture. So maybe it's just different. What's a, all right, here's one of my other favorite terms. What, what's a dirt bag? <laughs> a dirt bag? Uh, I would say a dirt bag is somebody who's committed. <laughs> I think most of our listeners probably have a very opposite idea of what a dirt bag is. You don't call someone a dirt bag when they're just super committed. What what is a dirt bag, Augie? So, yeah, it's somebody who's usually living out of their car or a tent uh, and at a climbing area. Um, it's like a it's like a privileged version of homeless um, in a lot of cases. Where people have just kind of like sacrificed all the, most of the material things and have adopted a lifestyle that is so low cost that they get to spend as much time rock climbing as possible. So like living in a van, you know, well, actually, can I be honest, since the pandemic, van life has actually been pretty elitist. Vans cost a lot of money now. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And there are a lot of yuppie rock climbers who are driving around several hundred thousand dollar vans for sure. Yeah. They're not dirt bags. They're more... Uh, they're they're Gucci bags. We're gonna call those Gucci bags. Yeah, different That's kind of. Term. We need yeah. to coin that one in class. <laughs> Gucci bag. I'll make that. I'll make that happen. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of it. What's another good term I'm missing out on? That's fun. Ooh, uh, beta is a pretty like vital one in rock climbing. And uh, Ooh, I think I know this one. Because uh, and I'll tell you why. Because I had my little daughter. We have a play set in our backyard, and Lily was. Uh, just learning how to talk and she was saying first i'm going to do this one here my right foot here and my other foot here and my left foot there and then you do this here and your foot there and then i remember my wife sent or i sent that video to the family and uh someone said i think obviously it was rachel uh said oh that was the best beta ever and so I think what you're saying in beta is it's like the ability to te like articulate your moves on a route. Is that what beta is? Pretty much. Yeah. It's, um, it's the information you need to do a climb. So what Lily's doing there when she's, uh, another term you could use for what she's doing there is sequencing. Um, so she's <laughs> finding, she's planning the sequence of how she's going yeah. to grab the holds. Right. So that's beta. Yeah. Um, and the nice thing about it, though, is beta isn't necessarily like grab this hold there, grab this hold here. Sometimes uh, micro beta is a really popular thing, too. So it might be something that's not as obvious as grab the hold. It's something more subtle, like, yeah, for that move, you want to shift your hips to the left. Oh, wow. Um, or something really small like that. I've, I've had somebody tell me, um, yeah, just clench your right butt cheek a little bit. <laughs> Worked perfectly. <laughs> So it's really, really small things sometimes, uh, but it's the information you need to, to get, do the thing. And uh, so in that sense, beta can also be a good life term. Uh, oh. You know, I have at many points asked my older brothers for beta on uh, how to be an effective adult. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, open up a checking account and make a grilled cheese sandwich. Like, yeah, adulting. That's life beta. 
Yeah, life beta. Know how to do those things. Don't we all need a life beta coach at some point? Ooh, you know, to. I, <laughs> I actually know. So there's this uh, scene in in again uh, Free Solo where they talk about Alex on Olds. I assume he's doing a beta where he's like on this really technical part of the climb. I think, and he's got to like shift. Just he's just rotating thumbs. And that like rotation of a thumb makes all the difference in like where certain pressure in the direction in which pressure is going. And uh, it's so interesting to think of like just the vector of like the, of a thumb push can change the dynamic of a climb. So fascinating. Now you sound like the climbing coach. Oh yeah. Right, man. I'm just, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the Gucci bag. Right. I'm the guy who's just watched all the, the documentaries and stuff and uh, have, have gotten into it, man. Um, so I want to end our conversation on a space and a place that is very special to you and that I happen to live near, which is Rumney. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rumney is something that has come up in conversation a ton as we've gotten to know each other, Augie. Uh, tell me, what is Rumney and what does it mean to you? Oh, uh- Rumney is two things to me, I suppose. Um, first, it was my favorite place on the planet, which is a rock climbing area in, uh, in Rumney, New Hampshire. And uh, it's the first place I ever climbed outdoors when I was a kid. I was, I was 11 years old the first time I climbed there. And um, yeah, I pretty much immediately fell in love with the place. Um, it's where I spent my summers as a kid. I went to my like, youth climbing team, went to a summer camp there for like about five weeks every summer. And uh, that's also where I made a lot of my closest friendships. Um, it's where I climbed a lot of my first grades and like had a lot of my first milestones in climbing. Um, it's, uh, it's a really special place. Uh, it's also the place I named my dog after. Um, it's a special place. It's, uh, I highly recommend anybody go there and rock climb because it's the best rock climbing. All right, man. Well, uh, why don't we get you back out here uh, to the East Coast and uh, I'll come meet you there and we'll send something. That sounds fantastic. What else? What, what, what are something else that you think uh, some nuances, things that. Uh... Like the only other thing I like kind of want to say in the space is just like how much I think that rock climbing is such an, an awesome outlet for kids. Um, I really just can't recommend enough that people take their kids rock climbing. Uh, it was the most positive thing that happened in my childhood. Um, but also I think there's just so much growth potential in it. I think that youth sports in general, I think are great, but what's particularly great about rock climbing is, uh, especially if you're climbing on a rope, uh, which is safer than bouldering, um, is that it's the risk is really low. The personal accountability component of it for kids, I think is really, really cool. Um, I think the social dynamics of a team sport kind of make it a little bit harder for a kid to discern like what I'm responsible for, what another person's responsible for when climbing. It's all just, this is you. And I think that's so great in terms of one, a kid's ability to um, pursue their own curiosities in that way. Mm -hmm. They can kind of decide what kind of climbing they want to do. Uh, And also just the way it like kind of brings people together. It's just such a positive community and it's so supportive. Um, even in environments where it is competitive. Uh, and I just think that that's such a special thing. And I really hope that uh, youth climbing continues to grow and continues to provide kids with these like great experiences. I think that's a beautiful thought. And uh, especially as the father of, of two daughters, um, you know, having that, like, we don't have like a rock climbing wall at our spot. We have a play set that has this little incline with just a handful of grips, right? It's probably about a, a six foot, climb like nothing crazy um but watching even my two-year-old like climb that thing i can not only see her develop like tactically like you know her dexterity her lower body strength her coordination but just seeing like when she first started getting up on that wall and climbing it consistently like the level of independence and sense of accomplishment that she felt at the top of that six foot wall, even at the age of two and a half, two, two years old, even, um, it's remarkable. It's really yeah, powerful and, stuff. And it's just such a naturally instinctive thing to do, right? Like you can just put Lily in front of that and she's like, oh, I know what to do here. Right. 
Yeah. yeah. And now she, Lily's got a little sister, Hazy, that's watching her from the stroller doing it and like already eyeballing like, what is going on here? How did my, you know, big sister get, you know, to the top of that thing? And uh, I'm sure it's going to catch on. Your partner is a climber. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like for you and Rachel uh, to have this sport together? Like, what does it mean for you as a, as a couple and a family man? Uh, it's great because all of our vacations, we get to just go rock on it. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it's really cool in that uh, I think it also makes it a lot easier for us to understand each other. Um, I think especially for Rachel to understand me. I've definitely spent a lot more of my life in this like kind of single-minded focus on rock climbing, whereas I think Rachel probably has a more uh, diverse and probably healthier relationship with it, in which it's uh, it's a fun sport she does. It's not like her everything, uh, like it has been for me. Uh, so in that way, I think she uh, understands why it's so important for us to go do this thing. Um, and she is really on board with it and wants to do it too, so it just makes it easy. Uh, but it's also just a really cool way for us to support each other in that I think it's just a really good relationship exercise to spend time doing a thing for your partner's benefit. Right. Uh, and in rock climbing, it's a really easy thing to do because you can just go belay them on their project or go, uh, you know, spot them on their bullet problem, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and the ways you can support somebody there, I think are, uh, are, are really cool in that there've been plenty of times where like Rachel probably doesn't have the climb experience to tell me like what I need to do from beta perspective on a climb. But she is incredibly useful to me in terms of helping me regulate my emotions and uh, and just like kind of be uh, be happy while I'm out there climbing. It's easy to get caught up in like trying to do this really difficult thing and getting like a little too focused on that. Uh, whereas the reality is when I'm just like happy with my wife, uh, I'm gonna end up climbing a lot better. I so love it, man. it's just a really fun medium for us to one just travel and see really beautiful places. Uh, but two, it, it just, I think it really helps our relationship reach like a, a greater level of depth and understanding. Well, that was our show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, would you consider please rating us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Those ratings help us out a ton. Also, consider going to 99pages.club, C-L-U-B, and joining our email list. Each month, I send out just two emails, one promoting our most recent podcast interview, but a second with some book recommendations for your nonfiction reading list. So far, the reviews have been really great. People like getting those unique reads on their list that they otherwise would not have found. So that's 99pages.club, C-L-U-B. Thanks, and we will be back very soon.